Hello, everybody, and welcome to this, the Media Moments 2022 launch special. On this, the final episode of the season, we've got three fantastic guests in for our live launch of the report. Don't forget that you can still download that report, though, by going to voices.media forward slash mm22. Now, this is the final episode of the season, but we will be back in the new year with another look at all the news and the views from the media world. But for now, please enjoy this episode, the live launch of the Media Moments 2022 report, and have a very, very happy holiday period. First of all, thank you to everybody who's taken the time to come here for this, the live launch event for Media Moments 2022. This is a report that we do every single year. It looks back at all the key media moments that we've found from the past year. Why do we do it? Well, for one thing, it's a nice way to anchor ourselves in all the events of the past year because everything in media moves so damn fast that often we forget what has taken place this year versus what's taken place four years ago versus what's taken place last month. So, for instance, Elon Musk, not to tank the stream already by talking about him, only took over Twitter just over a month ago. And since then, everything has been upended. In fact, when we were writing some of this report, we had to rewrite it on an almost daily basis based on what was going on around that. But the report itself is a labor of love from myself and my two Media Voices co-host and co-founders, Esther and Peter. We're going to be sticking around for the entire session. We're going to be having a discussion first, and then we're going to be bringing in some guests. But the report itself will be sent to an email as soon as this event has wrapped up. Or if you're listening to this on Catch Up, you can download it by going to voices.media forward slash mm22. Thanks to our friends and partners at What's New Publishing for being partners again for this fifth year of the report. And thank you so much to our friends at Pool for sponsoring and making this possible. Pool is the membership and subscription suite and all-in-one platform for digital publishers to convert, manage, and retain their members and subscribers. You can find out more about them at pool.tech, that's P-O-O-O-L.tech, or you can follow them at their new B2B publication, which is theaudiences.com. The three of us are going to present our top media moment from, from the report itself, after which we're going to invite our panel to join us for a wider-ranging discussion. So we're joined by Carolyn Fenner, who is BuzzFeed's Commercial Director for EMEA, Adweek's Europe Bureau Chief, Stephen Lepetak, and Pool Subscription and Digital Revenue Consultant, Ludovine Paquet. So thank you again to the Interactives team at City University who are also covering this lunch for us. Um, Peter, I think that we actually have a little announcement again before we begin. I mean, so so one of the things that we want to do with this report is actually get it out and start helping people understand what we think we got from it and what we got from the other people. Um, so we're going to have... Um, I don't know, what, what do you call it, Esther? Workshops or presentation sessions uh, whereby we'll introduce the report, tell people all about it and let people uh, ask questions. And that way we can maybe extend the reach of the report and to be crass and commercial about it, make some money. Hey! <laughs> Uh, anyone that wants anything about to know any more about that, just get in touch. We'll put it on the website and we'll follow up probably by this point in the new year. It's on the website already, Peter. I've been really organised today. Well, I was on the motorway. I just got <laughs> off the M74 about ooh, 15 minutes ago. Well, we appreciate you taking the time as well, Peter. So one of the things that we always like to do when we go through the report is to pick out our own 
key media moments as the report's authors. And Esther, I think yours is particularly pertinent because this year has seen so much upheaval in and around local news, not just in terms of business models, but actually in terms of how people are using local news to really deliver upon that promise of journalism and what it actually means to the public. Yeah, so hopefully uh, that screen has come up. Um, I think actually all, all three of our points are quite positive this year. This makes a change. Um, so I've been really excited by what's been a bit of a, a kind of local news revolution um, this year. The, we've seen an awful lot of change in how local news is covered and delivered, not not necessarily in the last 12 months, but sort of it's been building up to it over the last sort of five to 10 years. Um, and the creator economy has actually driven quite a lot of it. We've seen a lot of digital tools that that have been created to serve to serve a lot of sort of creatives that um, have meant that small teams or even some people on their own can suddenly launch a local news outlet and easily monetize it. Um, We've seen a huge rise in newsletter first or even newsletter only outlets, which either monetize through ad revenue or have support and donation systems in place. Um, One example issue in the UK is the Manchester Mill, which has been really encouraging this year. Um, Here in the UK, we've, we've kind of struggled for a long time with a successful paywall model for local news outlets for, for various reasons. Um, but the, these guys have actually really, really hit on something here. They they became profitable just a few weeks ago, um, just before their second birthday. And that's from just 1,600 paying subscribers. And I kind of like that that feeds into that idea of you, you only need to have a thousand true fans to be sustainable. Um, they've now expanded into Liverpool and Sheffield using the same Substack first model. So that's been really, really great to see. Um, but my top line finding and the one I've got here is I just thought showed some real hope and uh, for the sector, um, and that's that median annual revenue from for hundreds of local news organisations, yeah, organisations in the US went up by thirty three percent last year, and I suspect this year we'll see a similar rise. Um, so members of local independent online news at Lion Publishers in the US showed me- median annual revenue rose from ninety four thousand pounds. No, dollars in 2020 to $125,000 in 2021 on average. And actually increased member support was one of the main reasons for that. So that's my media moment, a nice positive one. Uh, looking, looking forward to see what happens to local news over the next couple of years. Yeah, it really is. Do you think that they come up with the acronym LION before they came up with what it stood for? Is that a backronym? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to speculate on that. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> but that's one of the things that we like, we like to touch upon in the report is effectively that what does what do business cases, what do business models actually mean for journalism? And as with the Manchester Mill, one of the things that we've seen is people are really understanding now the value of having boots on the ground, of having local journalists who are actually embedded in those communities. So it's been fascinating to see that, and that's covered in depth in the local news chapter of the report. Uh, my media moment is moving on to audio. And so audio this year has been in a bit of a, I suppose, not a retreat, but sort of a, a reassessment of what audio means to publishers and to companies. So obviously we've seen huge investments in podcasting, in audio tools, in audio equipment over the past couple of years from the big publishers. And you only have to look at some of the stats to see why. No channel has grown faster than digital audio last year. Advertising spend in the sector grew nearly 58%, reaching $4.9 billion, according to the Interactive Advertising Bureau's most recent data. That's an awful lot of money that's being left on the table. And it also means that, happily, uh, there is much more room for experimentation within the podcasting world. Um, Per a 2022 Edison Research Survey, 
Uh, 73% of the US population aged 12 and older, that's an estimated 209 million people, listen to digital audio, obviously including podcasts, up from 68% in 2021, and 67% listen to digital audio weekly, which is up at 62% year on year. That's a huge increase. Uh, Muckrack found that 67% of people are now actually recording videos of their podcasts. We've seen some uh, figures that indicate that that is actually integral now to growing and maintaining your audiences in the podcasting space, and that an increasing proportion of podcasts offer exclusive content to some of their paying subscribers. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I say that we've taken a step back and had to do a reassessment, this is why, because all that money is flooding into it. And for a while, it was almost a wild west of people just plowing money in, making sure that they had content, but not really taking the time to experiment with monetization, with demonstrating to advertisers that you do actually get bang for your book when you put money alongside podcast content. Uh, that's why we've seen some of the biggest players in the space making moves to control podcast audio. Obviously, Spotify have been on an acquisition spree in terms of content for years, but this year they also bought uh, analytics and metadata platforms, as did Acast. And of course, the sleeping giant of podcasting, YouTube, has launched its own dedicated podcast tab. Uh, We've yet to see how that's going to develop, but it is fascinating to recognize now that podcasting has always been mature as a medium. It's always been a fantastic storytelling medium. But now for publishers, the real opportunity is in leveraging everything that we've seen those big podcast platforms invest in to really ensure that they are getting the most money possible from their podcasting and audio efforts. Uh, You'll always hear people say, oh, it's actually a sort of very low cost of entry medium. And while that's true, in order to do it right, you do need that great metadata. You need all those tagging. You need all the analytics. And it's fascinating to see quite how many platforms are investing in that now. Um, in the report itself, we go into some how some publishers are using audio, but this is Peter's favorite stat from the episode we did specifically around this. 55% of podcasters believe that there are too many podcasts, um, and I'm one of them. But Peter, in terms of, uh, we, we spoke about podcasting and its inherent strengths, but in the episode, we also mentioned that it is very, very similar to newsletters in a lot of ways. So what are some of the big stats that you've seen, and what are your media moments around newsletters this year? I think the big thing, and it was Mark Sternberg that said it on the podcast that, that we had, was that idea of normalization. I'd actually use a different word. I'd say professionalization. I think in the past, newsletters have been a bit of a bolt on, you know, something that we do because everyone's doing it or because it's a good way to get traffic or whatever. And that's changed, I think. You know, there's been that investment in standalone letters where people are avoid. Uh, abandoning click rates part of that was because of the apple privacy changes where the stats just didn't make sense anymore um but also i think it's a personality thing that those standalone newsletters are developed as their own product so the guardian's a great example where they brought stuff in but they've delivered in a newsletter where it's it's that finite idea that we lost with social streams and and rolling news on web pages um, so that idea of that you get it, it's in your in your inbox in the morning, you finish it and then you move on. And I think that's a big part of what's going on with newsletters, particularly in the news field. I think what Esther just said about investment in talent, Atlantic's a great example. They did deals. They, it, it doesn't, there's no... There's no commitment to take those deals forward. I don't think that they're working maybe the way they wanted them to. The cost of acquisition on those newsletters seems really high. Um, the deals that they did was basically people like Casey Newton, they did, they did them a deal where 
if they brought their subscribers over, they would get paid a certain percentage of any new subscribers and they would get paid fees. And I don't know that the numbers are working according to, to Nick Thompson. The last thing I saw from Nick Thompson. But they're investing and that's the big part. I think that idea... Um, Newsletter first that Esther mentioned with local news, I think is everywhere. I don't think it's just in terms of local news. I think it's in terms of anyone that's publishing. They're really kind of going with putting content, original content straight into newsletters. That number that's up there, I can't actually see it, but I'm assuming it says 75%, does it, Esther? It does. Okay, so Quartz. Quartz did some research. There was a whole thing about... Quartz has gone back and forth, it got acquired, and then there was a management buyout, and was Quartz ever going to work? And on the numbers um, that they had around the paywall, it didn't look like it was working. But when they did some research, they realised that 75% of the people were actually opening their content directly in email. Um, so they dumped the paywall, leaving them free to, to kind of build traffic and get more advertising revenue but created a membership model specifically around the newsletters. And I think that is really, really interesting where it really puts a different front end on that publishing operation. Um, and I get, I'm a subscriber. I hold my hand up. I am one of the people that subscribe to squat to quotes and it's brilliant. It's really, really good in that sense. Um, it, it does the job that it's supposed to do. I mean, the other thing that's going on in, in newsletters, acquisitions, Axios got bought for 525 million. Industry Dive, which is a B2B publisher, got bought for, I think, about 380-something million, 390 million. Um, publishers in the States, like 6AM City, who, who are a news publisher, but they don't do hard news. Um, they're launching every two months. They're launching a new newsletter every two months. So I think it's that idea of professionalization and newsletters falling directly into the, the publishing portfolio. And the good news is, here's the good news for everyone, we are launching a publisher newsletter awards program to sit alongside their podcast awards. If you want to find more about that, you can go, oh, I've got to forget the website and I can't look. It's <laughs> Publishernewsletters.com. There you go. Uh, go to publishernewsletters.com and you can find all about it. Um, we're looking to I think to have the awards in July and the entries will probably open sometime in March or thereabouts, I would imagine. Yep. So there you go. So that'll be a, that'll be a fun one. We uh, As much as fun as it is to go through all of our entries to the Publisher Podcast Awards, I think the newsletter <laughs> one will be fascinating as well, just because of the commercial aspects of it that you mentioned there, Peter. How is that for but flying blind? <laughs> Well, we've rattled through our own media moments, but I think it's important now that we get a slightly wider view from a panel of experts. And so we're delighted to welcome BuzzFeed's Carolyn Fenner, Adweek's Stephen Lepetak, and Pool's Ludovine Paquet to discuss what they've identified as the biggest shifts this year and how publishers can prepare for what is likely to be another challenging 12 months ahead. Stephen, thank you for uh, taking the time out to tell me off of mentioning Elon Musk not a minute in. Um, <laughs> but we've already seen that some of the big tech companies and even a few publishers now are making cuts uh, as the ad market slows. So when we're talking about advertising, do you think this is going to be the start of a long, hard advertising winter as we grapple with a uh, global cost, cost of living crisis and this kind of slowdown with the big holding companies that brings? Or is the market more resilient after the last decade of highs and lows? Uh, how long have we got? Because that's <laughs> such a huge question. So has it is it going to be more resilient? 
I mean, it really depends on just the impact that we're going to see from the cost of living crisis on top of everything else. What I mean, what is always true about the ad industry is it's cyclical. These things will will always uh, come and go, turn around. But I mean, what we're seeing is the cost of digital ads have increased a lot of it down to uh, the the scarcity of inventory when there was so much demand uh, during the pandemic. Um, that's that's seems to be ongoing and as a result of that we saw Instagram and Facebook they raised their prices TikTok has raised its ad prices as well which is off the back of coming in pretty cheaply anyway so that was always going to come um, there's there's going to be a lot of different tailwinds for the industry to face but uh, I mean a lot of it just comes down to just how severe the economic conditions are going to be. Um, but when is that not the case in this industry? <laughs> well, that's true. Do you think there are going to be any big winners and losers from this? I know that obviously at the start of the year, well, in fact, Q2, uh, Zuckerberg said, you know, we're basically bracing for some massive headwinds there. Do you think that it's going to be some of those huge tech companies who are exposed to advertising that will see some of the biggest falls? Uh, I think Meta is quite a curious one to think about in terms of, what it is going to experience because it is looking so far down the line with its play on developing whatever it thinks the metaverse would look like that you kind of think they're just throwing a lot of money into hoping this thing comes off anyway. So what they're going to do for the next 10 years, I really couldn't predict. But <laughs> they, they really are they really are going all in on whatever they think they're developing being a huge success. Um, let's, let's not be too sceptical, shall we? Uh, so well. who the the winners. Um, what's been curious is, I mean, obviously we're going to talk streaming and the streaming platforms, Disney, Netflix, we're always going to, we've talked for years about when are you, when is Netflix going to add ads? Well, it's done it. We're there. And Disney Plus is probably a part of the reason why they've had to do that. But what they're doing is they're, they're doing that having built up a, a really strong, loyal audience. Again, that comes down to how loyal will they be Will that audience be, can they afford to keep paying these subscriptions? But really, the advertisers should win because it's it's premium inventory with great audiences that keep coming back. So I think the streaming platforms will be pretty solid in mm. terms of in terms of those. In terms of publishers, it's gonna what'll be exciting, and I do mean exciting, is to see all the different strategies that come out of I mean, we're all we're always talking about how our publishers are going to make money, how they're going to drive revenue, and there's always new ways in which they do that. And we've been seeing a lot around how they've incorporated more events and trying to build subscription products, as as Peter was talking about, including newsletters. I think it's going to be exciting to see all the different ways that publishers really do innovate uh, in order to bring in money, because. No one, mm. no one should be depending on digital ads revenue at all anymore. Well. That's undoubtedly true, yeah. And you mentioned there, don't be too cynical about the uh, about Meta and Web3. Well, unfortunately, that's basically the, the tone we've taken in the report. So if anybody wants some healthy cynicism, they can download that report after this. Uh, but Ludovine... I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, but Ludovine, the balance then between subscription and advertising revenue is always a tricky one to balance. What would your advice be to publishers who are looking to maximise ad revenue from casual viewers, but also encouraging prospective subscribers to convert? Yeah, it's it's a very tricky question to um, to dig in. <clears throat> and I say um, engaging your audience, uh, it's a very good 
um, good thing to start with. Uh, we definitely see a downturn in, in ad-based revenue amongst our clients. Um, so th there is a willingness to, to develop um, diversified revenue streams and, and to have several uh, ways of having digital revenues. Um, and another interesting uh, thing is that the average per user um, revenue is definitely higher uh, through subscription. Um, however, there are many steps between converting an anonymous user to a subscriber. Um, so I'd say the first step for a publisher is to um, understand uh, its different users' profile uh, by segmenting the audience and, uh, and, and analyzing the different um, group conversion rates. Um, and, and yeah, you can, from there, you can really start to uh, understand your audience and, and to test which one would be the best action to suggest to each one of your different segments um, in order for them to convert later. Um, so for very volatile user, it could be um, um, relying on ad-based um, revenue. And for a very engaged user, you could be relying more on, on subscription-based revenue. So I would say it's all about having the right message um, to the right user profile. Um, and, and with our clients, we're definitely trying to do that. And, and the best way of doing that is through testing uh, many, many different actions um, to your audience segments. Um, and, and another important thing is also to um, understand the value of each and every actions um, that you're trying your, your viewers to do. So it means understanding what's the worth of, a, of an anonymous user, uh, seeing some, some advertising, and what's the worth of a, of a new newsletter subscribers as well as um, a subscriber. Um, so yeah. I would say we do have a lot of work um, to do on that to very understand the value of each action uh, in order to have a, um, a good balanced revenue stream and, and it would be easier for publishers to, um, to, to make good decisions based on what's the value of each and every action. So yeah, I would say segment, test and uh, engage over time. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Um, touch on the idea of kind of, I suppose, recognizing the value of audiences and the value of users. Caroline, one of the things that um, has come up a lot at the sort of publisher events this year, and I know you've been on quite a few panels, is this idea that publishers are starting to kind of reduce the number of ads. Um, some are even turning off programmatic in favor of serving, well, in favor of their, their first party data advertising. This seems like a positive move for publishers to make. But I, I suppose, is the age of that sort of cheap, programmatic-driven digital advertising over, or is this just a temporary trend before we figure out kind of the next next best thing to third-party cookies? Everyone would love that to be the case, wouldn't they? <laughs> I think that it's I think it's the absolute, I think it's the absolute dream. And you know, if we could turn off the open marketplace, I think everyone would jump at the opportunity. I think the problem that we've got is that we're we're quite embedded in this in this space. And, you know, even looking at Bloomberg the other day when they announced that they were turning off all open marketplace sort of revenue, their, of that revenue, their overall revenue, it was only 5% came through the open market. So it's very, you know, say easy. It's very easy for them to prioritise user experience when you've got a huge subscription base and only 5% of your revenue is coming through the open market. When the open market accounts for 40 plus percent of your advertising revenue, it's really difficult to make that that call. And I think that 
it has to come. Do you know what? If I could sell all of my inventory, like all of my display inventory via direct or PG or PMP, of course I would. But that has to come from the advertiser and, and the client side. They have to make that choice and they have to say, actually, we're moving away from the open marketplace. And that then opens up a whole lot of questions. The ease of the open marketplace, the cost, like, you know, it's it, there's so many benefits to the open marketplace still. And it's that weight, it's that weighing up, the brand, the, like brand safety. It's weighing up, you know, like transparency and having direct conversations with, with brands, knowing where your ad's going to run versus cheap, easy, mass spitting out ads everywhere. And I think that this is a problem that we've got is that so many people and so many media owners, so many publishers are still so reliant on the open marketplace revenue. That You mentioned that about um, uh, brand safety there. Are you, st- are you finding block lists is still a big issue? I know it's something we spoke about quite a lot during COVID-19, but is, is that still a problem you're seeing these days? Yeah, I mean, definitely, certainly it was at the week and HuffPost to definitely to an extent. And I think that, you know, there, uh, there was, I was on a panel um, uh, a little while ago and, and you know, there's there's so many, you know, look, not being able to uh, to, to have anything when the, when the Queen was mentioned, you know, during that time or, or where, like, you know, not mentioning COVID or Trump or, you know, when you're reliant on advertising revenue as so many news brands are, that hurts. That really, really hurts. And, you know, I always tell this story and it's, it's, it's an old one now, but it's not even that old. It's probably about a year old. But, you know, I was talking to someone and they said that um, uh, they uh, an, an advertiser wanted to block World Health Organization. So anyway, they're looking at this PMP and, and they, they can't work out why it's not working and they're, they're doing digging. And it turns out that they've, they've block listed who? instead of World Health Organization. So they've not listed who. And, you know, obviously not naming names or anything, but, I mean, that's crazy. Like, you can't be doing that in 2022. You can't be, you know, making that mistake. And this is hurting big, you know, this is, this is, this is really, like, hurting really brand safe. Uh, news news publishers they, they've got they've got bills to pay they've got really expensive journalists to pay they're they're premium they've got engaged curious audience and it's you know it's really painful uh, and i i really feel for like the news like the, the big news brands because it's 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 happening all the time and um yeah I, I think something's got changed there i don't know what it is and i know that reach have got their own you know their 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 tool that they're using and it's around sentiment and different things and i think that you just got people have just got the tech has got to get smarter to overcome that. I think that's exactly right. And we had Chris, sorry, Chris, just, Chris, just quickly can I ask Caroline and Stephen and uh, uh and Ludovine, um, cookies, third party cookies been booted down the road, it's now gone to what 2024. Are they ever going to go away? Just thinking of that picture that Caroline painted at the beginning of that, is third party cookies ever going away? Why, why would you want them to? We've had so many wonderful years writing about them. Being why followed by a toaster around the internet. Ah, oh, they're the best thing. They're, they make the internet wonderful. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, do Google, will Google stick by 2024? I I would not be I would not be surprised if it, it doesn't look as though they have an answer coming anytime soon. I think we're stuck with them for a while yet. Yeah, I, I I do I do agree. Um 
And, you know, I do think it's a good thing because people are starting to think about, you know, first party data and, uh, you know, Permitive are doing like a fantastic job in the UK. And and I think that, you know, we're going out of first party data. Future do a great job with Aperture as well. There's there's loads of first party plays. Um, I just can't see uh, there isn't there isn't a good enough alternative yet. Yet. Yeah. Um, so, and I guess, is that, you know, is that on Google to, to correct? I'm not sure. But. That, that, that must be so frustrating from a publisher perspective because publishers have been ready for this for like, what, three, four, five years now. And every time you will kick the can further down the road, the, the, the kind of, I suppose, reaping the proper benefits of that also gets kicked down the road, right? Yeah, it's an it's an, it's a really interesting one. Um, I think that realistically, looking at the time, I mean, this is why we break the report out into separate segments because we we could talk about advertising alone for an entire hour. But moving on then to subscriptions and Ludovine, there was a lot of concern from publishers, in particular earlier in the year, that consumers are going to cut subscriptions with those increasing economic pressures that are also impacting advertising spend. So, is this something that you've seen starting to happen, or is kind of the market holding up at the moment? Yeah, um, it's a very good point. Um, the, the subscription fatigue is definitely a risk that we are seriously following um, and we try to anticipate um, as much as we can. Um, we have not yet seen any major change um, in the new subscribers uh, acquisition rate. Um, however, we strongly believe that retention and working on your users' loyalty um, will be one of the major challenges of 2023. And um, we're actually uh, working right now to um, um, develop several use cases um, to answer this aspect uh, with our clients. Um, to give you a very uh, uh, an example, we are um, working with several public publishers um, in segmenting their subscribers um, and, and segmenting subscribers with a very high propensity to unsubscribe. Um, for instance, people with a, a credit card um, with an expiration date coming up. Um, and by segmenting them, we're able to um, display specific messages and, and specific wording uh, in order to reduce churn. So we're anticipating this um, this challenge uh, through retention action. Um, most of our clients have, um, by doing so, their their churn rate have um, has decreased um, to over twenty five percent. So I think we do have um, some tools right now to anticipate the situation, um, mainly working through retention. Um, and there is a very interesting article in, in the audiences that is called um, uh, Why Retention is More Important Than Acquisition. Um, and I would definitely uh, uh, suggest reading it. It's, it's a good um, and insightful tool uh, to anticipate this uh, retention challenge. Nice. Fantastic. One of the things that I think we should uh, probably ask to throw this out to not just the panel, but to the uh, the audience as well, is Absolutely. as much as we'd like to think that um, news subscriptions occupy a special place in consumers' heart, the reality is that we're in competition for consumer revenue with everybody else who's doing a subscription play. So I'd just like to ask the entire panel, my, my colleagues and everyone in the chat, who do we think is doing subscription really, really well this year? Who is making themselves either through their comm strategy or through their product strategy uh, completely um, 
safe in terms of being cut from uh, from from consumers. Peter looks suspicious. Or one. <laughs> no, I've got I've got one if nobody else no, has. The, and actually, the, this. Oh, 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 oh all right, he's got one. <laughs> no, the point with that is that no one is completely safe because it's all about priorities. You know, people will prioritize news when there's a war or when there's COVID or whatever. And maybe they'll cut Disney or, or Netflix when times get hard. But it's that's a very personal thing. And I think that's exactly what Ludovine's talking about, about that messaging. The messaging strategies have got to change as circumstances change and as the audience changes. So to say that anyone is completely safe and will never have any charm, that's just never happening. Can I tweak that slightly? I'm, I, I, I don't disagree. I just think it's more about value. And I think nothing else has demonstrated that more this year than the journey Netflix has been on. And Netflix, I'm just going to pick on because it's it's an easy one. It's kind of, yeah, it's the canary in the mine for a lot of this. Um, the, when they when they lost a million subscribers in Q2, that was sort of, you know, there were headlines all over the place. Subscriber wave is over. Um, you know, subscriptions are dead. That's it. We're all screwed. Um, and actually, I can remember discussing this at the time with you guys. Netflix had basically just had a season where it was it all just been a bit pants. Like there was, they hadn't really bought anything new. Bridgerton had finished. There wasn't anything to watch. And as soon as the the sort of autumn season hit, they've had record breaking record breaking growth again for the last two quarters. And you just think. Is that not, in a nutshell, just exactly what this subscription journey is about? Is that you've you've got to be valuable to your audience? You've got to have something that they want to subscribe to, and if the content starts to go down the toilet, so is the subscriptions. Can I make a point about what you've just said? Though that is basically what traditional televisions always experience. <laughs> Summertime, there's a lull; they don't put out their best content. Netflix has just become a traditional TV channel to me because that's exactly what they've just experienced. You're thinking that we don't have that sort of... In fact, in our broadcast section of the report, we spoke about kind of maybe the replication of event TV on a platform like Netflix. Is that something that we think is going to be important? Those kind of those flashpoints, those, as Peter mentioned, those really important uh, topics that we can build subscriptions around? Charlotte Henry's got a really interesting view on this, where she talks about where you used to have that water cooler moment um, which was you actually talked about the programme, you talked about what you saw, and now the conversation is, are you watching or have you seen so that you can avoid spoilers? So that, the, you know, the, the actual, uh, everyone watching the same thing together has changed because it's not together, it's that on-demand thing. But yeah, I think that was, you know, what, what Esther's talking about is a strangest things phenomenon. Now, who the hell would ever subscribe to Netflix to watch Bridgerton? Give me a break. <laughs> why, don't, why are you slamming Esther live on this? Okay, never mind, never mind. So Madhav uh, has mentioned in the chat that Deniken in Slovakia is the smartest paywall publisher that he knows. Uh, Carolyn Ludovine, do you have anybody who you think is doing subscriptions really, really well this year? Um, Absolutely. Oh, sorry, go on. You can go first. Go, go ahead. <laughs> Welcome to you first, um, Caroline. So for, for me, it's... Um, there was, there's, there's obviously some interesting uh, information around micropayments and how is that going to take off? I know that Brian Morrissey has recently written, you know, he's written about it in the rebooting newsletter this week. But do you know what's interested me uh, when when I've been looking is actually how you can link 
and again, it's probably with my commercial mind, how you link advertising and subscriptions together. So actually, um, The Athletic have recently announced a partnership with Google, Mm. and this is all around women's sports. I don't know if you've read about this or heard about this, but Google are huge on um, women's sports, um, and they want to be ingrained in it. They want to be part of it. They want to champion it. They want to triumph it. And so what they've done is they've gone and spoken to The Athletic, and obviously there's there's a partnership and revenue exchange. And now what uh, the athletic are doing is they've um, hired journalists they've um, they're going to go deep into this space but they're going to do it because of the google partnership so they it's opened them up to this new area because of this revenue which you could call partnership revenue or advertising revenue or any form of, of revenue but it's allowing them to to put content in front of the paywall that in, in turn could it actually lead to more people signing up and, and driving subscriptions. And you can see it with the Washington Post as well. They've done something with Barbie um, where they've offered free subscriptions to a certain audience. Um, and they also done it with, um, I think it was Morgan Morgan Stanley as well, I think. Was it Morgan Stanley? Or, yeah, Morgan Stanley with a financial series that they've done in front of the paywall to encourage people to sign up. So this is an advertising play that links back to subscriptions. And I think it's really important because you know if you know what your business model is and you're you're set on advertising teams can talk about driving subscriptions and marketing teams within within businesses can talk about advertising and, and there should be a fluid conversation between both perfect and Ludwig um, yeah, I think we do have a quite interesting example in France. Um, it, it's an economic magazine that is called um, Alternative Economique. And um, it, it's it's a good example, quite interesting, because um, so they changed mainly three things um, and their conversion rate actually uh, increased by 40%. Um, and the three things they changed is that they really worked on their engagement strategy. So whenever you would go to their website, the first action that was asked was to um, leave your email in order to um, access uh, first free content. Um, so they work soft conversion. And then the second page you would go to, um, they displayed this paywall um, where you could directly pay into it. Um, so you could subscribe through the paywall. And this was very interesting because it was a very um, um, very new uh, in terms of um, um, uh, payment facilitation. It was very easy and very digital friendly. Um, so they actually had many, many subscriptions um, that were um, working through this uh, paywall. Um, and the third thing that they did is that they changed the wording on their paywall from something very um, frustration-based, like um, uh, this content is restricted to subscribers, to something very, very um, uh, turned uh, on their value proposition. And what would be the um, the the reader benefit uh, if they subscribe? So by changing the three things, uh, yeah, they really improved their conversion rate. And I think it was a very good example uh, here in Europe. Nice. Fantastic. Um, Peter and Esther, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we did our uh, special subscriptions-based pod- podcast episode, I said that I'd come up with a solution that would solve all the media, uh, the, like the media industry's ills for subscriptions. 
Demario Kemp, I said that. Well, it turns out that's just what Danny Ken's doing. I didn't come up with that at all. They, okay. Unless they stole that from me and implemented it years ago, I don't know. So we're moving on now to platforms. And Carolyn, I know that BuzzFeed has hysteric, his, hysterically historically driven huge quantities of traffic from Facebook. But how has its focus shifted in recent years? And you know, how are you actually going about finding and experimenting with audiences on those kind of new and upcoming platforms? Yeah, I think um, the great thing about BuzzFeed, you forget that it was actually around before the iPhone even existed. And I think what the, the key the key thing with with us is that we move where the audience is. So we're obsessed with our audience, and therefore we we just we we follow them. So we picked up very quickly that TikTok was going to be uh, huge for like Gen Z millennials, absolutely huge. So we actually moved on to, to TikTok very, very early and adopted it very early. And what's huge, and it's spoke about so much internally within BuzzFeed Inc., is vertical videos. They're absolutely like in the US, the UK, obsessed with vertical videos because that's the preferred medium for the younger audience. That's what everyone's doing. So, you know, obviously very quickly, you know, Meta got on board with Instagram Reels because they saw how big it was on TikTok and, and vertical videos for us is, is absolutely huge. And, and TikTok, even though, and interestingly enough, and this is what um, BuzzFeed do very well, we've moved before even sort of the monetizations there and even before, you know, we can, the measurements there, we're doing it first because, again, we want to be for the first the first people to it, the first people to experiment with it. And we've put out, I think this last Q3, we put out 5,000 pieces of content on vertical video um, which is double the amount that we did the same time last year. And it's the views are up 60% quarter on quarter. So you just know where you, you we know where our audience is and, and we and we follow them and you know we we will go wherever they are, whether it's TikTok, whether it's something new, you know, whether it's you know, anywhere that we where they go, we go. Okay, so related to that, um, I, I suppose there's been a sort of journey. Like Meta has completely cut ties with publishers this year. They've they've made it quite clear that they don't care. Twitter is. Um, I'm amazed it's lasted to the end of November, but it, we've got to the end of November and it's still functional. Um, from a published uh, from from a published why can't I not say that word? From a publisher perspective, um, I'll, I'll ask this to all three of you: Is there still a value for publishers in having a presence on these platforms and to what extent do they then chase audiences on those platforms? Like, does it come to a point where you sort of have to say we've invested enough, we know that this platform is potentially sort of on the way down in the next few years, or is there still, is there still value in sort of, I suppose, chasing where the audiences are going? That's certainly the case for advertisers on Twitter anyway. <laughs> Poor Apple today. You got hammered. They got hammered, didn't they? Um, but it's, I think for us, uh, absolutely. Like you know, a lot of um, publishers rely on like SEO to discover content, but we do rely on we rely on the platforms. And actually, a big part of our business model is being platform agnostic, being able to move around. Like I said, but I think for we've still got huge audiences on um, on Meta. We've got huge audiences on on Twitter. We've got a great relationship actually with with Twitter. Um, from uh, from a you know rev share and monetization point of view, um, but it's it's I, I think again what we've, you've got to be aware of is just being prepared to pivot like and being prepared to I hate that word as well it's so awful isn't it but it's being able to move it's being able to move quickly and it's being able to again know what's the next big thing because you know let's be honest with ourselves this audience this younger audience Gen Z millennials 
if, if they're not on one platform, they're going to be on another. And they just sort of move and they adapt to what their parents aren't on. They're not going to all of a sudden start going to the news agent and buying the Telegraph or watching, you know, linear TV again. They're, they're just going to move to what the next thing is. And it's just making sure that you're moving with them. And if it isn't meta or if it isn't, you know, if, if it isn't TikTok, if TikTok's banned and, you know, no one's allowed to use it in, in Europe or in the US, like it will be something else, you know. Mm. So I just think it's just making sure that you're one step ahead. Yeah, I like I said, get spent the weekend uh, testing. Everyone's talking about we're going to the Mastodon, we're going to Hive Social. Okay, well, I'll check them out. Who who's actually on there? And yeah, most of the major platform, um, most of the major news broadcasters possibly have an account on there, but they're not really using it. I think BBC had sent a few messages on Mastodon, but nothing major. So there's definitely pitched pitched their flags there, but I don't sense any real intent on using it. But that just shows there is a still a major dependency on social media to to bring in audiences, and that they know they need to be with it, they need to be where people go. And if Twitter Twitter does go through the wall, that is going to be a huge impact for media. No, I mean. The, the amount of journalists that are on there that share ideas and uh, we like to slag each other over off on there, but also <laughs> great news. And it's going to be a huge impact if Twitter goes to the wall. And mm. we're all looking to figure out where do we go next if it does happen. See, here's the thing we've, we've for years and years and years, when we've been talking about platforms, we've been talking about them and what they offer to publishers. And Mastodon's big play at the moment seems to be, as Jess was talking about before, kind of those uh, micropayments for publishers. Now, we can't talk about micropayment. We just can't. We don't have the time. But do we think that then the next great tranche of, uh, of offers from these new platforms is going to be around rev share for publishers? Or are we, as we've seen with Meta, just going to see them divest and just kind of wash their hands of anything to do with publishers in the wake of the Australia-type rev share deal? and everything like that. I, I don't think any of these platforms are going to see the scale from publishers that would make that worthwhile. That's why, you know, let's face it, that's why Facebook doesn't care and it's why Apple didn't care back in the day. And with huge respect to Madav, who I can see on my screen in the corner, Google only cares to a point. You know, Google's got other stuff to be getting on with and, you know, God love them. That's, the platforms make their money from scale um most publishers these days aren't going to make money from scale like i caroline i don't know about buzzfeed anymore i don't know where you're at in terms of scale but most publishers are, are moving towards some form of not necessarily a niche play but definitely a limited play and so uh, again this is a whistle-stop tour through the year, as is the Media Moments 2020 report. So moving on, then we're going to do a quick stop at emerging technology. And Stephen, we were talking about Meta. You were talking about it's throwing all the money at the wall and seeing what sticks approach. But many of those high-profile Metaverse experiments have been around brands, have been from brands. So obviously we saw Nike land on Roblox. We've seen Adidas. We've seen Gucci going all on these platforms for experimentation. Are those efforts going to help drive interest in these platforms? Or are users going to be put off by brand intrusion into what has historically basically just been a gaming medium, do you think? Oh, I dreaded this question. I think we're <laughs> all at the point where we're just sick of hearing about it this year. Um, I mean, the ones that have... I mean, we've just talked about scale. How how many of these actual plat uh, platforms or experiences have really garnered a huge amount of scale? The ones on Roblox seem to do pretty well. Now, that's a game. That's not, mm. not the Medfers. It's a gaming platform. Um, most of them 
whenever I asked the question, why have you done this? Oh, we, we felt we had to test and learn, see what it was like and make sure we were on the platform and figure out how we can grow and engage future audiences. Okay, fair enough. I I don't know how long this will last. Again, I come back to Meta, what thinks we'll be doing this in 10 years' time. We're bored of it now. So brands, yeah, okay, it's good that they're probably trying something, but I don't see it being where all the where all the marketing budget is going to go. And it will just be an added part of the marketing mix. It won't be, I don't think there's going to be any great scale on this anytime soon. Um, Karen, I've got one for you then, because um, BuzzFeed, you said, you know, you said they were before the iPhone, they, they were very, very quick to digital and social publishing. Um, as far as we can see, unless I've missed some press releases, they've been quite hesitant to try anything like NFTs or the, or the metaverse. Is there promise in these kind of platforms or do publishers like yourselves need to see users, see some actual ROI before committing to building like BuzzFeed in the, in the metaverse? So it's not a huge a huge, huge play for us. And it's not, um, you know, it's not number one priority. However, last year we bought Complex and with Complex, there's two key um, events that take place um, throughout the year. And actually the one of them was last week in uh, Long Beach, which is Complex Con. Kanye West actually crashed it. We had to like chase him out of the, out of the event. It was absolutely mental. Um, and so Complex Con is one. And the other one is Complex Land, which is all done in the metaverse. So it's all around culture. So it's um, music, it's sneakers, it's like all, all, all sorts of street culture. And that's that actually launched during the pandemic as a response to not being able to do things, you know, in the physical world um, and that's huge that's on its third year now and is doing really really well so that's complex land and then the other one that we've just done is with tasty so we've just launched mega tasty in um, meta horizons so that's about you know recipes and uh, cooking experiences and everything that you can do um sort of in, within this virtual world i can't say that i'm a, a, a huge um knowledge expert in this space but uh that is that's where uh, buzzfeed car at the minute but taste is an interesting one um and i think it's all about communities isn't it and it's experimenting and it's new and i just think as long as you're not you're not overwhelmed by making money straight away and you're just doing it to build experience to experiment to see what works i think that's going to be the best thing to do in this space for the time being virtual recipes i thought i thought i'd had it all <laughs> oh i see you know played cooking mama um, so yeah, I think that, uh, and this might be somewhat controversial here for, uh, for the rest of the panel, particularly my co-hosts, but I, I think that's exactly right. You need to be experimenting on these platforms, maybe not the ones like Decentraland, or I can't remember the name of the, the really high end exclusive one yet, but having a presence there, knowing what is possible, that's how you get down the road to the point where you can actually make some money off this. That's where audiences might potentially end up and having that expertise doesn't just help commercially, it helps editorial as well when you come in to create that content. Uh, we've got a question here. Haven't heard any comments regarding YouTube. Where does this platform play in the distribution strategy for publishers? Obviously, Media Voices, we put out our episodes on there, but for wider sort of publishers, is it now just a kind of a distribution method for content that is created for other platforms? Or are we seeing anybody who's doing anything particularly innovative and uh, exclusive to YouTube? Can we think of any examples from the past year? In terms of 
Because I think this is the thing. So media moments, we tend to focus on things that have particularly changed in the industry. And actually what has changed with YouTube this year has been the podcasting strategy, hasn't it? Um, Because there was that report earlier in the year that said that like YouTube was the most popular platform for podcast listening, which I think threw quite a lot of people. And um, we've subsequently put media voices on YouTube (laughs) and have been sort of oddly surprised at some of the results. But I I think... Again, that's that that has YouTube's podcasting success has surprised YouTube. And when we spoke to them, they're like, Yeah, we're sort of, you know, trying to make it a bit easier for people who want to listen to podcasts, you know, maybe on the go. Um, but I don't know if that's just because because it's such a destination of everything else, podcasts have just sort of naturally um become popular on there. Um, I mean, Chris, you, d- you definitely are more into YouTube than I am, and I, oh, I don't I'm understand that at all. Yeah, no, I'm I'm never off it. It's it's becoming a real problem for me, actually. Um, so I think that as we come to the end of the discussion, because we only have a couple of minutes left, if we could maybe go around our guests and ask them, what are you most excited about coming into 2023? Is it new formats? Is it new revenue models? Ludovine, what would you say are you most excited about from the sort of the publisher perspective coming into the new year? Yeah, um, I think we're growing in very competitive and fast-moving markets. So um, I would say what I'm most excited about is um, that publishers will probably have to do better than applying a lot of content restriction from a, a subscription perspective, and uh, and definitely improving their uh, user experience. Um, up to conversion. So I think we will definitely witness very high quality marketing strategies over the next few months. And I'm also very excited to see um, all the different use cases that will come up to uh, retain uh, your your current uh, subscriber base. Perfect. Thank you. And Carolyn? So I've got four, but I'll do them very, very quickly and very, very briefly. So I think one is the creator space. I think it's going to be really interesting to see with the change in social platforms, where they go and what's going to happen with them and actually BuzzFeed to doing a lot of work in that space. I think two is collaboration. I think that more media owners more than ever are going to come together and work together. We've seen it with ITV and Channel 4 working on spec savers and we've seen it with loads of different examples that would never have happened like years before. And then wider... I'm interested in about digital measurement, what's going to happen with that and where that's going to go because certainly the the CPM, CPVs have got to go um, and where that space is going to head in the next year. And then lastly, I'm really interested to see what Apple are going to do in the the ad world because they're clearly going to move into like a TV space like with their DSP that they're launching. So I'm really curious to watch Apple as well. So I don't know whether it's like excited but just interested is probably the better word so thank you <laughs> fair enough uh, and Stephen are you excited about anything you, you seem quite cynical about <laughs> the course of the hour me cynical never uh, obviously I'm very excited by Yahula. that's going to be fantastic um, I'm going to echo what uh, Ludovine said was, I, I think the most exciting thing is audiences and subscribers are going to win out of this because publishers we're all going to have to work so much harder and offer even better products in order to keep their loyalty and grow loyalty so I think what will be interesting to see is exactly what comes from the innovation in order to do that but I think when the consumer wins it's actually a good thing at the end of the day Chris it's just worth saying in the chat Madav's posted a video um, for telling people how news organisations can get started on on YouTube Um, but just in case anyone's not looked at the chat that's in there if they want to grab it 
Nice, fantastic. Well, thank you to our guests for coming and thank you to everyone who's been watching along as well. All the audio from this will be available as a podcast in and of itself coming out next Monday. Please do check out the Media Voices podcast where we talk about this almost every week with a couple of hiatuses. But yeah, the report will be in your inboxes very, very shortly. Uh, We'll put show notes together so you can find our amazing panel. And thank you again to Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for their support of not just this report, but for the entire podcast season of which we're at the end. You can listen to all 10 deep dive episodes into the topics we cover in the report by going to voices.media or searching media voices wherever you listen to podcasts but one of the things that we we love about pool before we move on is the industry knowledge that they have and that they share so they have a team of consultants like ludovine who support publishers in using the tools and optimization strategies and also have recently launched as she mentioned the audiences which has loads of content on everything to do with engagement conversion and retention you can find out more by going to pool which is p-o-o-o-l dot tech or you can follow the audiences at the audiences.com We've had so many outtakes of that in the <laughs> episode, haven't we? Um, and I'll just say to, to people that are left, uh, please do stay in touch. Um, we, at, we at Media Voices do a daily newsletter you can subscribe to for the top four media stories each day. Um, we also do weekly analysis and more deep dive reports coming next year. So that's all over at voices.media or um, at Media Voices Pod as long as Twitter is still alive. Okay, so that will be until, I don't know, 5.15 this afternoon. <laughs> um, so we'll be back with a new series of the podcast in January after a well-earned Christmas break. We hope you enjoyed the report. We hope that you have enjoyed this session. And please do stick around because we're going to be talking about this for, fingers crossed, many months and years yet. But for now, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.